Hello and welcome to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. Listen, I was staying at someone's house and in the bedroom where I slept, there was a bookcase full of books. And you know other people's bookcases are always more intriguing and attractive than your own. So I, uh, I went into it investigatively and I saw Sylvia Plath's novel, The Bell Jar which I'd never read and knew very little about. I read it and I was only at the house for a week, but I increased the amount of time I read the novel each day because I was desperate to finish it before the end of the week. I did so. I thought it was brilliant. It's described as an autobiographical novel, which I always think is a bit of a diss. It makes it sound as if someone really has written an autobiography and then flogged it off as a novel and haven't put in any of that artistry and creativity and inventiveness that one associates with the novelist. I found a lot of artistry, inventiveness and creativity in the bell jar, but there you go. I think Sylvia Plath's poetry suffers from a similar problem in that it's often described as confessional poetry, And so, again, people think, oh, yeah, well, they're just churning out their life. And some people love that. But I think I think that that undermines the work. I think it's much cleverer than that. And also, if it was just Sylvia's life blasted out, then I think it would fall into the trap that W.B. Yeats, the Irish poet, identified, which is uh, all that is personal soon rots. We need something universal to hold on to in poetry, something that every reader can use to find themselves in the work. And I think that that does happen in Plath. I don't want to drag her away from the black fingernail grasp of emo fandom but I think it's harmful to just define Sylvia Plath as a tragic figure who took her own life and had a terrible husband and terrible parents let's just concentrate on the brilliant poet aspect I find myself nervous saying this I feel I'm going to be uh, attacked in the night by Helena Bonham Carter or someone of that ilk. Okay, so um, that's what I think about Sylvia Plath. I think she's a good poet. I once came across her, or a quote from her, in an American mall, and there was a, a shop there that was just quotes, things with quotes on, a sort of quote shop. I was looking for a um, a placemat with the living and merely the dead on holiday, but I couldn't lay my hands on one of those. But I saw a poster of a Sylvia Plath quote, and it said this. And by the way, everything in life is writable about if you have the outgoing guts to do it. And this is the bit I draw attention to. And the imagination to improvise. So the imagination to improvise, that's the bit she slaps over her life experiences and it's the bit that turns them into poetry. 
or a brilliant novel. By the way, just as a little uh, sidebar on this, I said that Sylvia Plath took her own life. Just a few months ago, I would have said that Sylvia Plath committed suicide, but I heard the mother of a young man who'd uh, killed himself talking, and she said she hated the term committed suicide because the word committed is mainly associated with sin and crime, two things that suicide used to be defined as. And I thought that was a tremendous point, and I resolved that I wouldn't use the phrase again. And it just shows how life in recent years has become more and more like poetry, that we think more now about the words we use, choose the words thinking about the effect they have on others just like a poet does a poet will choose a word that he knows will ring through people and I think more and more in speech we do that now and think about the effect and whether that's the effect that we want to have a little sidebar I'm calling life imitates art okay I want to uh, go straight into a uh, Sylvia Plath poem And I'm choosing the moon and the yew tree from her collection, Ariel. The moon and the yew tree is a a much analysed poem. And I'm going to ignore most of that analysis and tell you what it does for me. But I've read plenty of the analysis, so don't think I'm just taking the easy way out. No, sir. Right, I'm going to give you the first stanza. Brace yourselves. This is the light of the mind, cold and planetary. The trees of the mind are black. The light is blue. The grasses unload their griefs on my feet as if I were God, prickling my ankles and murmuring of their humility. I think I'm going to stop it there. That's not the end of the stanza, but it's just too much to take in in a a lump like that. This is the light of the mind, cold and planetary. This, I think, means now. The way it is now is the light of the mind. This, this, the light of, of, of the world tonight where I am is the light of the mind, cold and planetary. Fantastic. So she's saying that that's what her mind is like, cold and planetary. You can see it, can't you? This bluing sky with the planets visible, stark and cold. The trees of the mind are black. So in this mental landscape there's these ominous black trees the light is blue blue becomes a significant word in this and i think it's because well if we look at the uh, title poem from ariel which is called ariel this is how it begins stasis in darkness then the substanceless blue pour of tor and distances. Now, I think that means stasis in darkness. So when it's dark, when it's really dark at night, you can't see much. You're in stasis. You're frozen. Then the substanceless blue pour of tor 
and distances. So substanceless blue pour is the night gradually, just slightly becoming day, black becoming blue, and it's a pour of tor and distances. Pour, as in it's being poured out. This light is pouring tor and distances. Tor being a big rocky hill distances. So you're starting to see more. You're starting to see elements of landscape. So this substanceless blue, I think, is where we are in this poem. I think black is becoming blue. Night is just inching towards day. Right, the light is blue. The grasses unload their griefs on my feet as if I were God, prickling my ankles and murmuring of their humility. Fumy, spiritous mists inhabit this place, separated from my house by a row of headstones. I simply cannot see where there is to get to. Right, so, I think that she's talked... Well, there's a, obviously there's a graveyard because there's a row of headstones. I think that these uh, the grasses unload their griefs on my feet as if I were God. I think that's the idea of the dead beneath the earth, beneath the grass, responding to her. The grasses unload their griefs on my feet as if I were God prickling my ankles and murmuring of their humility. So she can hear this. Humility is uh, obviously a thing that people who pray dwell on quite a lot. So the dead seem to be speaking, praying, prickling at her ankles. So she, the speaker here, not Sylvia, the speaker is, it seems, in a graveyard when it's still pretty dark, but not as dark as it was. It's blue. What about this for a fabulous piece of gothic? Fumy, spiritous mists inhabit this place, separated from my house by a row of headstones. Whoa, man, I love it. I simply cannot see where there is to get to. Now, what is that saying? Maybe she can't see her way home. She can't see how to get out of the graveyard. But it sounds more than that, doesn't it? And one thing that this poem does a lot is mix the physical with the mental. So we never know whether this is something that the speaker is physically experiencing externally or whether it's some reference to an internal happening. Next stanza. The moon is no door. It is a face in its own right, white as a knuckle and terribly upset. It drags the sea after it like a dark crime. It is quiet with the O-gape of complete despair. I live here. 
Okay, the moon is no door. Now, some people moan about poetry because they say, oh, God, you've got to get so deep into the thing. It goes on and on, and you've got to think about this word and that word, whereas prose, you can just race along. It's true, but to me, that is its great pleasure. So when I read a phrase in a poem like, the moon is no door, I think, oh, I'm looking forward to getting tucked into this. Why is it no door? Now, it could be a simple thing here. It, she's just said, the speaker, that she can't find her way out of this graveyard. And maybe that's a, a physical problem, that she actually can't find the pathway out of the graveyard. Or maybe some obsession with death that she can't find her way out of, some state of mind she can't find her way out of. And somebody could just say the moon is no door, so the moon's not going to be a way out. That's the simple interpretation of it. So she rejects the moon as an escape from this confusion, this being lost. But, of course, I had to go and investigate this a bit more. I found out there's a thing called a moon gate, which um, features heavily in uh, traditional Chinese weddings. And it's a, a circular sort of moon-shaped door that the couple step through for good fortune. And then I found, what about this, because Sylvia Plath is American, that during the period she would have been growing up in America, outside toilets often had a crescent moon cut into the door to provide light, to be a sort of uh, primitive air freshener. And also there had been a point where that symbolised that it was the woman's toilet and the men had a sun-type hole which showed that that was their toilet. So, God, it suddenly got very mythical and mystical and all that stuff. I don't know if either of those are at all relevant, but I've learned so much from going down the wormholes of poems. Is it wormholes people go down? Is it rabbit holes? The holes, anyway. I've described them before on this podcast as being like an a uh, advent calendar, you open the door and then you just keep going, another door, another door. But the moon is no door, as we've established here. And maybe it just means that I'm lost, I can't get out of the graveyard, the moon's no help, because it's not a door. The moon is no door, it is a face in its own right, white as a knuckle. And terribly upset. Okay, so, of course, it is a face in its own right, the moon. And you get a lot of the moon in Sylvia Plath poems. And she seems fascinated by what I grew up calling the man in the moon, but what I think she sees as the woman in the moon. White as a knuckle and terribly upset. That's clever, isn't it? Because when you clench your fists, your knuckles do go white and slightly circular, white, shapish. And if the moon is terribly upset, then of course that's what her knuckles will look like because she'll be clenching her fists in anguish. 
It drags the sea after it like a dark crime. It is quiet with the O-gape of complete despair. Oh, so good. Listen to that. The moon. It drags the sea after it like a dark crime. Of course, the moon does drag the sea because it affects the tide. But like a dark crime, something that it's done, something that it regrets, but something it can't shake off. It has to carry it everywhere, like the mark of Cain, which Cain got for killing Abel. It is quiet with the O-gape of complete despair. O-gape, capital O, hyphen, gape, G-A-P-E. And it's that, the way the moon has got that really open mouth when you look at that thing that seems to be a face on the moon. And she is is seeing that as the O-gape of complete despair. I think one could argue there's an element of pathetic fallacy going on here, which is a literary technique I've spoken about before on this podcast. But a stanza that begins, this is the light of the mind, cold and planetary. It's saying that the world tonight is reflecting my inner feelings. And that's what pathetic fallacy is about. It's sort of sympathetic and a fallacy because it's not really true. It's how we feel. It's profoundly subjective. And that is why the moon looks so sad, so despairing, maybe, because the speaker might be projecting her feelings onto it. And that that line ends uh, with the O-gape of complete despair. I live here. Now, again, in that, um, as I was saying, what's physical and what's mental in this poem, I live here, you live here near the graveyard, or you live in this state, this state of being white as a knuckle and terribly upset, this state of having the O-gape of complete despair. I live here, this is my life. Twice on Sunday, the bells startle the sky. Eight great tongues affirming the resurrection. At the end, they soberly bong out their names. So, obviously, if she's in a graveyard, there'll be a church there. So, she says, I live here. And I think she is talking about the state of mind. I think she is talking about the sort of darkness the death obsession, the broken-hearted moon, that that is where she lives. But she's also saying, yeah, I do live here, and I'll tell you something about living here, and that is that twice on Sunday the bells startle the sky. So the church bells ring. Eight great tongues affirming the resurrection. So the, the tongues, the metal I can't think of a word for that bit in the middle of a bell that doesn't sound disgusting. Let's call them the tongs, those metal bits. Eight great tongs affirming the resurrection. So, yes, they celebrate Christianity, Jesus rising from the dead, as we all will, as the people in that graveyard 
will. That's what the bells are saying. Not suggesting for a second the speaker agrees. At the end, they soberly bong out their names. Now, what does that mean, you're wondering? Well, the thing, they've said this massive, important thing about the resurrection, these eight great tongues, and then they soberly bong out their names. And what often happens in church bells is they send out this, it's like playing a scale. I, I believe it's, it's either lightest to heaviest bell or heaviest to lightest. This is not Frank Skinner's Campanology podcast, but it sort of goes dun 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 So it's an octave. You will have heard it, and that's what she's talking about. And they bong out their names because it's sort of identifying them as the heaviest bell, the next heaviest, next heaviest after that. So it's a sort of a after the grandeur of um, celebrating the resurrection, it's quite a, a mundane ending to that. And I think this poem is partly about a sort of a disillusionment with Christianity. So here, I guess it's kind of saying, uh, yeah, it started great and then it just went a bit ordinary. Next stanza, the yew tree points up, it has a gothic shape, the eyes lift after it and find the moon, the moon is my mother, the yew tree points up, so at last the yew tree from the title makes an appearance in the third stanza, it points up and um, it has a gothic shape, so it feels a bit like a church. Of course, I went off to uh, research yew trees, and it's fascinating reading. Apparently, get this, there are about 500 churchyards in England that have yew trees that are older than the actual church next to them so it, they were there first and that sort of puts them it makes them feel very pre-christian doesn't it i mean apparently they live about two thousand years yew trees or they can do again amazing i know but the idea that a lot of them 500 of them in england are older than the church building that they're at the side of I think that's interesting. There's even more interesting stuff. They are seen as a symbol of the resurrection because sometimes when the branches drop off yew trees, they grow again as little individual trees, which I understand is quite unusual in the, uh, in the tree world. So life, they renew life, a symbol of resurrection. But also, the yew tree is very poisonous. So it's also seen as a symbol of death. I go into this symbol thing because um, Sylvia loves a bit of that, a bit of symbolism. But the, the yew tree, yeah, it's a really interesting thing. And the way it, um, the way it reaches up here, 
and it says it points upwards. I don't know if I should tell you this, but I will do. Apparently, in ancient Roman literature, there's quite a lot of suicides who kill themselves by taking you poison. But I'm trying to keep this out of the biographical as much as I can. It's not easy. The yew tree points up. It has a gothic shape. So it's a bit church-like. The eyes lift after it and find the moon. So I think at first, because it's in a churchyard, because it's pointing upwards, because it's gothic, we think it's pointing to God. But it seems to be pointing at the moon. This old, mysterious yew tree with all its symbolism of death and resurrection and... It's almost like, yeah, it was there before the church. And maybe it's a sort of uh, a bit of a spy on the inside, a pagan spy that lives in a Christian churchyard. Actually just tries to encourage us to look up at the, the moon, this, this tragic goddess. Yeah, I'm going to do this as well. There's a book called The White Goddess by uh, Robert Graves. It was very fine poet and also wrote I think I Claudius and and those things I haven't read the whole book I got about halfway through and then I had a desperate desire to light a joystick so I I put it down but it's a very mythical magical book in which Grave says that poetry used to be the language of magicians, magicians who presided over these ceremonies in which they worshipped the white goddess and she's like a muse and poetry had magical powers and this, I'm going way back now obviously, and this threatened people like the Greek philosophers and uh, Christianity and so they sort of kept it down and suppressed it and turned it into a nice, manageable, friendly little thing. But occasionally, according to Graves, when you read poetry and it makes the hair stand up on the back of your neck, it's because it is indeed in touch with uh, the white goddess. It is a celebration, a magical prayer to the muse and that's why it affects you i mention this because sylvia plath and yeah i'm gonna mention the bad guy if that's how you see him ted hughes they both loved loved that book and found some truth in it i suppose any poet likes the idea that the poets used to be the great sort of pre-stroke magicians of an ancient time when they um, they conjured up the muse, the, the white goddess, the moon goddess. Right, I think I've got that out my system. There's more, there's a lot more I could tell you, but, I mean, for example, <laughs> the goddess is married to two, um, they're sort of kings, the king of the waxing year and the, the king of the... Uh, the uh, waning year and it's to do with the waxing and the waning of the moon and they sort of take it in turns to be her 
uh, consort, if you like, but there's a rivalry. They're like blood brothers. And the king of the waning year is quite a sort of a dark, frightening figure. But I want you to imagine, if you will, and yeah, we are going into biography, but it's imaginary biography. Imagine Sylvia sitting with her husband, Ted Hughes, who's a tall, thin, dark, brooding figure of a man. And they read uh, The White Goddess together. And then they talk about the the sort of uh, the dark side, the god of the waning year. And this is what Graves says about him. The king of the waning year often appears in nightmare as the tall, lean, dark-haired bedside spectre. Oh, I bet Sylvia couldn't look him in the eye after they'd read that together. Okay, so the yew tree points up. It has a gothic shape. The eyes lift after it and find the moon. The moon is my mother. Now, this has caused lots of uh, critics to say that this poem is about Sylvia's mother, which was actually a very fine song by Dr. Hook. But uh, check it out. It's about Sylvia's mother who's the moon and it's about Sylvia's father who's the yew tree. There's a lot of this. Usually everything in the poem is either Ted Hughes or Sylvia's mum or Sylvia's dad or Ted Hughes's mistress. And people enjoy pulling it apart. Not Frank. The moon is my mother, I think, means that I feel a strong attachment to the moon. As we've already established this terribly upset creature with the o-gape of complete despair it drags the sea after it like a dark crime i mean yes i think the speaker does identify with the moon and sees it as her mother the moon is my mother and here again we're going to get this contrast between christianity and a sort of a darker, deeper, more Robert Graves, white goddess, pagan, earthier nature-worshipping world. Okay. The moon is my mother. She's not sweet like Mary. Her blue garments on loose small bats and owls. How I would like to believe in tenderness. The face of the effigy, gentled by candles, bending on me in particular, its mild eyes. So she compares the this tragic moon with Mary, uh, the Blessed Virgin, the mother of Jesus. And she says, the moon is my mother. She's not sweet like Mary. So she's not sweet. I don't think. Pagan goddesses tend to be sweet. They tend to be scary. Her blue garments on loose small bats and owls. Now, Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus, always wears blue. The sky is blue at the moment. The light is blue. So they are like the moon's garments. Her blue garments on loose small bats and owls. And, of course, the moon does seem to release nocturnal creatures like bats and owls to shake them from its uh, garments. I would like to believe in tenderness, back to 
the Virgin Mary now, the face of the effigy. Remember, there's a church nearby, almost certainly uh, uh, some Im- image, uh, some statue of Mary. The face of the effigy, gentled by candles. What a fantastic phrase that is, gentled by candles. Bending on me in particular, it's mild eyes. So she's sort of part of her aches for that kind of warm, loving, not so scary, crazed, desperately upset, pagan, moonlight mother. I have fallen a long way. This is the next stanza, the last stanza, in fact. I have fallen a long way. Clouds of flowering blue and mystical over the face of the stars. So I've fallen a long way. I don't know if she means... I don't think for a second she means that she has physically fallen. I think, again, this is an internal thing. I have fallen. Maybe she means that she was Christian, but not anymore. She's fallen from grace, if you like, and fallen into something more earthy and pagan maybe she means that maybe she has just fallen she is broken she's on the floor clouds of flowering blue and mystical over the face of the star so maybe that again is the morning starting to happen clouds flowering blue and mystical over the face of the stars that strange one in television they call on the blink when it's neither light nor dark inside the church so now we're thinking about the church building in this graveyard inside the church the saints will be all blue floating on their delicate feet over the cold pews their hands and faces stiff with holiness. So she's imagining in the church now, again with this light inside this deserted church. Deserted because it's, you know, it's virtually nighttime. There's no one in there except the statues and the pictures. And that's what I think she means when she says inside the church, the saints will be all blue, these Uh, figures around the church, floating on their delicate feet over the cold pews. Now, it sounds quite mystical. I think it means the statues are raised and they seem to be floating on their delicate feet over the cold pews. Cold pews, again, they probably are cold at this time of the night, but it also seems like a dissatisfaction and a rejection of formal Christianity. Their hands and faces stiff, with holiness. Well, of course, if they're statues, they will be stiff, but also that suggests a lack of freedom, a lack of wild expression and passion that the speaker clearly wants from religion but doesn't feel she can get from Christianity. Okay, last two lines. The moon sees nothing of this. She's bald and wild. And the message of the yew tree is blackness, blackness and silence. 
you. The moon sees nothing of this. She doesn't go inside the church in that way. She is not of that world. She's bald and wild. And of course, the moon does look bald and its face, its terribly upset face with that, uh, that O-gape of complete despair. It, it does look uh, wild and clearly otherworldly as it is sort of another world the moon sees nothing of this she's bald and wild which um, it contrasts as well with that image of mary who was gentled by candles and has mild eyes rather than um, than wild eyes and the message of the yew tree's blackness blackness and silence so the speaker a despairing figure, it seems, in many ways, looks to the yew tree, but I don't know if she's aware of the uh, image of uh, of resurrection that's associated with the yew tree, the image of immortality because of its great age. She chooses its poison, its connection with death, and the message of the yew tree is blackness, blackness, and silence okay i was gonna do another sylvia plath poem but i just got engrossed to be honest forgive me for that but i enjoyed it i have to say and like i say feel free obviously to impose or release the biographical elements of this poetry if you must and if you want to make the moon olmar plath and the yew tree, her potentially Nazi father, um, go for it. I think that's, it's, you know, it's whatever, whatever you need from a poem. For me, I'm just happy with a weird, crazy, mystical Robert Graves, white goddess, oddness, and just the beautiful language, the beautiful phrasing the great skill of Sylvia Plath. Thanks for listening to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. Don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. And you can also catch me every Saturday at 8am on Absolute Radio. There'll be less poetry in that, but more jokes. See you next week.